Today we turn in God's word to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. We're taking a break from our series in Job today for this occasion of profession of faith and new members, looking at God's word together in 1 Timothy. There's also an outline on page 4 if you'd like to follow along. Hear now the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Loved ones, the church is a people and a place. It is a people that God has called out of this world to be members of his kingdom. It is a place that we are gathered together to worship the living God, a place where the gospel is preached, the sacraments are faithfully administered, discipleship and shepherding and church discipline are exercised. So there are pastors and elders and deacons who care for and love the flock of God who are gathered. We are redeemed by God, called out by him to worship him, and this is the way it's been since the beginning. Do you know who the first members of the first church were, children? Adam and Eve. The church began in the Old Testament. It continues to grow throughout Scripture, progressively unfolding. And we see that Christ is the head, the foundation, the owner, the builder of his church. He died for his church. We are his body, his bride. And First and Second Timothy and Titus are called the pastoral epistles because they are written by Paul to Timothy and to Titus, two young pastors, to tell them about life in the church of Jesus. Today we look at this theme then of confessing the Christian faith. First, the truth of the gospel. Do you see in verse 16, it talks about a mystery. What is this mystery? Now, some of you know the days of Murder, She Wrote. Or my in-laws love Matlock. They're still showing reruns. Or maybe it's Columbo, played by R.C. Sproul. (laughs) I mean, Peter Falk. The resemblance is uncanny as everyone looks now at their phones. I'm just kidding. It is uncanny. If you've never heard Sproul do the Columbo impression, you've got to hear it. The mystery that the Bible's talking about is not something unsolved, not something hard to understand. It's something long hidden that has now been revealed. Romans 16, 25. In the Old Testament, things were dimly seen. Now, they're fully seen in Christ in the New Testament. It's like a room that's darkened with furniture in it in the Old Testament. You can kind of see a chair and the outline of a lamp, but the lamp's not on. Now in the New Testament, 
the lights have been turned on. You see the fullness of the same covenant of grace that was there way back in the days of Adam and Eve. It reminds us, if you're talking to your kids or a friend or someone on the plane about the Christian faith, talk to them about the covenants of the Bible. Talk to them about Adam, who was created in the image of God, upright, happy and holy, right kids? Created to obey God personally, but Adam, as the federal head of all humanity, breaks the covenant of works, plunging himself and all of humanity and the world into curse and sin. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. And kids, as you know from catechism class and from your mom and dad, God promises a second Adam through the covenant of grace, one who would crush the serpent's head. This second Adam is great, the Bible says. See, that great means he is way better than anything that came before way better as a high priest, way better than the false gods the Ephesians were worshiping. First Timothy was written to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus. Do you remember what the Ephesians said was great? 20,000 of them gathered. Great is Artemis, the Ephesians. This would stand right in the face of that. No, no, no. Great is what? The mystery of godliness. Great is this amazing plan of God where all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. Jesus is the mystery of godliness, or that word means piety. Piety doesn't come through some rules or some sort of a pull yourself up and improve and get better. The secret of piety is Jesus, the good news of who he is and what he has done. And Paul explodes, literally, in six lines of a hymn or a creed or a catechism of, an early, of the early church. That's what we see here in these lines. He wants us all, in the midst of our trials and struggles, to see how great the Lord Jesus is. He was manifest in the flesh. When Jesus was born, he did not begin we believe, as the Bible teaches, in one true God. But, unlike other monotheistic religions, Judaism and Islam, we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is eternal God, equal with the Father. The Son became man, truly man and truly God, acknowledged in two natures, two whole, perfect, distinct natures, Godhead and manhood, inseparably joined in one person without conversion, composition, confusion, inseparably, indivisibly, the properties, properties of each nature being preserved. And you say, what does that mean? The Council of Chalcedon, 451, the Westminster Confession of Faith. These creeds are valuable kids, and moms and dads and grandparents. They were written by men who thought deeply, who suffered greatly, who loved Jesus, who loved his church. Their testimony in these creeds, if you haven't read them or you think, what do they mean? It helps us. It protects us for setting boundaries on the essentials of the Christian faith. It helps us to see the truths expressed in brief forms, do you remember what the man said to the pastor? 
the five B's. Be brief, brother, be brief, all five. The creeds help express that. They're wonderfully summarizing who Jesus is and what he did. He's manifest in the flesh. As Kevin DeYoung says, God cannot suffer, God cannot sleep, God cannot die, God cannot be born, God cannot grow, God cannot be seen. But Jesus, the God-man, experienced these things that God, as God in heaven, didn't experience. This is a mystery, loved ones. We need a fully human Christ to have a Savior. He is made perfect through suffering, qualified to save us. He had to be made flesh and blood because Adam sinned, and all of us in Adam. So kids, Jesus has hair and fingers and toes, a belly button, a real human body, a real human soul. His cheek was kissed by Judas. His back was flogged. He suffered in the flesh. He died on a real wooden cross. He died not just a physically torturous death, but God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. In our place, the substitute dying, satisfying the justice and wrath of God. Mom and Dad, have you told your kids, I believe this? We're not going to hear Disney, Pixar pontificate. This is real history. That's why we believe the Christian faith, first and foremost, by the power of the Spirit, of course. He's vindicated by the Spirit. This means justified. Not the justification of the ungodly, because Jesus is perfectly righteous, but the justification of the righteous one. This is a big concept, vindicated by the Spirit. It means the Spirit of God declares Jesus to be just. He did it and proved it at Jesus' baptism as he descended upon him. In the miracles Jesus did. But above all else where, Romans 1. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. How? According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Because those who put Jesus to death, and all of our sins were laid on him, of all of his people, of course, but those who were there who put him to death said, this man is cursed. A Messiah is not supposed to die. On a cross of all things, he is cursed of God. He's getting what he deserves. He's a blasphemer. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Everything he says about himself is true. Justified, it overturns the wrong verdict. He is the son of God. He did pay for all the sins of every one of his sheep. The wages of sin is death. But those wages have been paid for. Death has loosed its chains. It could not hold him down. Raised how? By the Spirit. Every Sunday is Easter resurrection, Sabbath day Sunday. We praise the Son who is raised. We praise the Father who raised him. And the Son raised himself, the Bible says. But we also praise God, the Spirit, who raised the Son from the dead, not as a phantom, 
but with an irreversible, incorruptible, glorified body. Christian, do you believe this? Kids, have you told mom and dad, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead. Not as an idea, not as a moral lesson, but physically, bodily, triumphantly. He was seen by angels. Glorious, supernatural creatures who worship God, who were made by God, who are spirits, who were there the night of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. Glory to God in the highest. Angels were there in Gethsemane as he sweat drops of blood, strengthening him. Angels witnessed the resurrection. They're there at the empty tomb. They're the first ones to tell the disciples he's alive. And yet, there are some things into which angels long to look. Kids, I want you to stretch your neck as far as you can. Just stretch it out like a giraffe. Reach it up. Oh, go, how far can that neck go? That's the picture of 1 Peter 1. The angels longing to look, craning their necks, trying to see if they can penetrate into the wonder of the mystery of God, made flesh, dying for sinners. Angels have no personal knowledge of redemption. That's what that text means. These angels know nothing of grace. It's incredible, isn't it? You've experienced something those angels haven't. He's taken up into glory. Forty days after his resurrection, the disciples are looking on. He's lifted up a glory cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud of God, the Holy Spirit, not a cumulus cloud, not a tornado cloud, but the glory of God takes him up visibly, physically, the ascension. Angels are there. Angels will be there when he returns in glory. Angels are there right now worshiping at the throne of God. Angels are present with us as we're worshiping in the heavenly places. Jesus indeed was seen by angels. This creed of 1 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that Christianity first and foremost is a truth claim. C.S. Lewis, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. If true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And these truths are not just historical notes. The transforming reality in the disciples, as Paul writes his last letter, 2 Timothy, from prison, awaiting execution with great joy because he knows by faith in Christ he also will rise. He knows that he's about to die. The church will not die. Jesus is building his church. Secondly, the mission of the church. What is the mission of the church? You can't improve on the Great Commission, can you? Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Kids who made profession of faith, Jesus is with you. When you face trials and temptations to sin, to deny Jesus, when friends around you say, chuck it, it's fake, 
It's worthless. Party. Have fun. Jesus is with you. Jesus will protect you. Jesus loves you. We love you. The Spirit of God is in you. He will help you persevere. And we will help you too as a church because the church is the house of God. See that? What does that mean? If you're in the first century, house of God. We'd be driven back, Ligon Duncan reminds us, to Jacob, Bethel. Some of you went to Bethel, the house of God. That's what that word means. Jacob met God there. God told Moses, build a tabernacle. That's going to be my special dwelling place. Not that God is confined to that. God is everywhere present, but God is near there in love and covenant mercy in the tabernacle as they travel through the wilderness. And then a stone tabernacle. That's what the temple is. God is present there with his people. And that's what house of God, first of all, is referring to. Gregory Beale tells us, the temple. Now, this teaches us something very important. There's a continuity with the Old Testament church and with us today, with Israel and those who believe in Christ today. So here's the mystery of godliness. The Son of God incarnate comes, breaks out of the Old Testament temple, establishes a new temple for his people, who is Christ. So you don't have to go to a temple. Wherever the marks of a true church are, God is present by his word and spirit. The church is his house. That means he dwells in the midst of us. We're not coming to a Rotary Club meeting. We're coming to meet with the living triune God. And because we're in union with Christ, who is the temple, we, 2 Corinthians, are the temple of God as the Holy Spirit lives in us. It's by the Spirit of God that we've been brought from death to life. Our eyes have been opened, and we are now, by grace, the adopted children of God. So household also means family. God is our Father. Christ is our elder brother, by grace, through faith. And here are your brothers and sisters. Jesus has established a new household. Every tribe, every tongue, every people. And we are, what God says, is the pillar of the truth. Again, right back to the Old Testament. There were pillars in the temple that God made in the days of Solomon that Hiram built. There were also pillars in the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians, 127 of them. So this is a vivid sermon illustration, redemptive historically, for the people. A pillar holds something up, doesn't it, kids? Helps to hold up a roof. Buttress, foundation, that helps to provide the bedrock for the building. Ezra talks of the foundations of the house of God, the temple, right back to the Old Testament. What Paul is saying is the church is not only the home for God and his people, it's the home for God's truth. The people of God are people of the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're not individualistically kind of random people who just show up and disappear. No. Salvation is personal, yes, but not individualistic. God saves a people he loves from the seed of the woman, a people reduced to eight in the days of Noah and the ark, 
a people that God says to Abraham will be like the sand on the sea, the stars in the heavens, a people that grow and spread as the church grows and spreads in the midst of false teaching. This is not Pollyannish stuff. Second Timothy, even in the days of the apostle, there were false teachers denying what? That we, our bodies, will rise one day from the dead. And like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you deny the physical resurrection of our bodies as Christians, you are denying the resurrection of Jesus' body. You can't have one without the other. And their talk spreads. That's what false teachers do. They spread. They stir up. And they teach things contrary to the word of God. Paul knew this would happen. He says, wolves will come in after my departure. They'll come to Ephesus. Be aware of them. And remember, Christians, don't be surprised. There is a visible and invisible church. The invisible church is the totality of the elect on earth and in heaven who have been called by God, redeemed by Jesus, saved and united to him by faith. The visible church, that's the group of baptized, professing believers and their children who gather any given Sunday. And every congregation, Paul tells us, in the days of Paul, Ephesus, Galatia, all the way through history, is a mixed multitude. There are professing believers who are savingly united to Jesus, and there are hypocrites who aren't. The beginning form of the kingdom, Beale says, is invisible. Like leaven growing, like a mustard seed. The tares are growing up with the wheat. Unbelievers and believers are together. That's one reason. Just before our passage in chapter 3 of Timothy, Paul talks of elders. Because elders guard against this. Thanks be to God for Walt and Dale and Dustin and Drake. These are godly men who love you and love God's word and love the truth of the gospel. Thanks be to God for deacons who love to care for God's people, and we have them, and we're thankful for them. And we're asking you in the next month or so to be praying about nominating men for these offices. This is not a popularity contest. This is not a, oh, I'll just do whatever. Read and pray over 1 Timothy 3. Pray that God would raise up, as he has with these brothers, men who are saved. First of all, men who are Christians. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Men who defend the gospel, who know theology well. Men who are grounded in scripture and the confessions of the church. Mature in doctrine and life. Men who, when you're around them, you say, this man is helping me to be more like Jesus. Men who are members of the church and actively involved in the family of the church, who love you and pray for you. Men who are gifted, yes, but men who are humble, not argumentative, not divisive, not proud, not self-righteous, servant leaders who are wise and discerning, men that you find approachable, that you think, I can go up and talk to him and I'm not going to be on pins and needles and I'm not going to get kind of a strange, cold stare. Men who are good listeners, 
So much more can be said. Pray about this, loved ones, for the health of God's church. Because we are to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Meaning we are to hold high, not our opinion, not any one man, but hold high Christ and the gospel. We missed a few lines in that creed, didn't we? Christ is proclaimed among the nations. That's the good news of the gospel, loved ones. In the first century, someone would come back from a war and they would tell of a battle and they would say, I've got good news for you. Well, this is the good news of the gospel of God. The good news of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Christ and him crucified is proclaimed among the nations. Do you remember those men? And there was also a woman among them, two of them, a man and a woman, on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Jesus. They were downcast. They said, we thought he was the one who would deliver Israel. Right? Romans, kick him out. Nationalistic zeal. They didn't realize that the Messiah had to come and suffer and die and then be raised from the dead. All the scriptures point to that. That's why our name in some ways is Emmaus Road Reformed Church. We want you to look to Christ. We want you to trust in Christ. We are all about Christ and all the Bible. When they saw Jesus alive, they said, my Lord and my God, and they went and they preached him. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That happened on the day of Pentecost. That's still happening today. We're praying for the church in Congo today that God would build them up in faith and hope and love. It happened about 100 years ago too. Eric Little, Olympics, Paris. Remember him? He did not run in a certain race, the 100 meters on Sunday, the Sabbath, so his rival won the race. He runs in the 400 meters, which he wasn't prepared to really win, and he won it. But as wonderful as that is, Eric Little said something else. God made me for China. He was born to missionary parents in China in 1902. After the Olympics, he was sent to be a missionary in China. As the train is pulling away, he shouts out the window, Christ for the world, for the world needs Christ. He died in a camp in China just before the end of World War II. The world needs Christ. We need Christ. Not only is he proclaimed, but by the Spirit, he's believed on in the world. The disciples believed. John, Mary Magdalene. He's believed on by 3,000 on the day of Pentecost in Acts. And still today, we are justified by Christ fulfilling the covenant of works that Adam broke and by the atonement in his blood offered in the covenant of grace. So Jesus does the works we owe to God under the covenant of works. He keeps the law, fulfills all righteousness. We receive the gift of Christ and all his benefits by faith alone in the covenant of grace. Resting, trusting, believing, confessing. Kids, you confessed Christ today. Christ is the mystery of godliness. Christ is your only comfort in life and in death. What does that mean for how we live as the church of God? Paul wants to preserve the integrity 
of the gospel message, which is linked, you see in verse 15, to the conduct of the Christian in the church. What does God say in the Bible characterizes a healthy church? Lots of things. One of them is the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. So as we worship, as we teach, as we catechize, as we out, do outreach and evangelism and missions, this is the goal. Disciples made of all nations that would praise and worship God. Disciples who are becoming more like Christ. Here's where we're brought back to the temple. Do you remember the priests in the temple? They were to keep the Old Testament temple holy. Who's the temple? Christ is the temple. And you, as you are in Christ, united to him, trusting him by faith, are the temple of the living God yourself. That means the church is to be characterized by what? Holiness. God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. You have the righteousness of Jesus. You have the spirit of God in you. Godliness is a disposition by the spirit, that word, to love and obey the Lord, to love and obey what God says, to love each other. And the mystery of godliness is Christ. Do you remember that? If we talk about piety and godliness without Christ, we're doing the Pharisee thing. We're thinking it's all externals. It's all what I look like. It's all what people think of me. And they miss the gospel. They miss Christ. They are far from the kingdom of God. Beale says we must conduct ourselves with godliness in the temple. Why? Because Christ was fully godly. We are to be godly like our Savior, covered with his righteousness. I want to apply this very specifically in one area. There's a lot of areas you could apply it. But how does Paul apply this? Back to 1 Corinthians 6. Your bodies are members of Christ. Your bodies are good. Elderly people in nursing homes, young teenagers, those that are suffering afflictions and have bodies filled with illness and disease and weakness, and your body is good. But your body's not yours alone, and neither is mine. You were bought with a price. Jesus died to purchase your soul and your body. Your body belongs to Jesus, so we are to use it in a way that honors him. You say, well, that's not real specific. Well, Paul's about to get real specific. Do you know where he goes? 1 Corinthians 6. If you have sex with a prostitute, you become one flesh. That's what that is. But you are one spirit with the Lord. You are his body. When you join a prostitute, it's like joining the body of Jesus himself to the prostitute. These are sacred, holy things. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you've received from God. We must not mistreat the body, not misuse it, not abuse it, no aestheticism, no indulgence. But, loved ones, the Holy Spirit lives in your body. This is Paul's language. Look it up in 1 Corinthians 6. You don't want to employ Jesus' body in sexual sin, do you? You don't want to use Jesus' eyes 
to look at pornography. Do you? This is the gospel. This is not, well, I'll just get better. This is recognizing who we are in Christ. We're here to encourage each other. As we come together to worship the living God, we are dwell, indwelt by the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but when you're in your own home, it can be easy to grow lethargic and apathetic, right? As you come together, like Luther said, it's the church gathered, the multitude. A fire is kindled in our heart. It breaks its way through as we worship the Lord. We are here to encourage each other. We're not here to walk out and go our way alone. We need each other. We need to one another each other, serve each other, invest in each other's lives, send a text of encouragement, meet for a walk, just say, I I'm praying for you. We can't live the Christian life alone. We're not lone rangers. Around you, Christian, are suffering people with temptations, with struggles, with sins that we committed this week, with trials, with afflictions. Weak and bruised and battered and confused, some of this is spoken, some is silent. Some say, my anger, I'm overwhelmed. I am really having a hard time forgiving that person. And Paul says, oh, Paul says, look to Jesus by faith. Look out to each other in encouragement and in love. Encourage each other to fight the good fight of the faith. In 1 Timothy 6, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you have what, kids? Today you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's what you've done. Carelessness and self-indulgence in the Christian life arise from, how would you fill in the blank? Hmm. That the greater part of us wish to serve Christ at ease as if it were a pastime where Christ calls his servants to warfare. John Calvin. What's he saying? We are in a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, united to Jesus. And R.C. Sproul brings this home in a vivid illustration, because I think we can kind of check out easily thinking about this. Here's Sproul, Romans 7. Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul uses an illustration there, Romans 7, from the ancient world. One of the punishments for murder in certain cultures was a person had the corpse of a victim tied to their back until that victim's dead body so putrefied that the flesh fell off it and all was left was a skeleton. Then they would be released from it. Walking around with a body of death stuck to your back. That's the picture of Romans 7, 24. Reducing a person to wretchedness. Dear Christian, in some ways, this is the battle of the Christian life. We are a new creation in Christ, but the sinful nature is still in us. Like this putrefying body of death, a dreadful sinful nature that torments us, causing us to be in this ongoing conflict. Kylam, Henry, Aaron, Joel, Patricia, Rand, brothers and sisters, we are in a war 
a war against the flesh and indwelling sin. It's heartbreaking at times and gut-wrenching. But we have the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. This is not a losing battle, but we have to be aware of what's happening because Paul says, I have a goal for you. I have a goal for you, church at Ephesus. I have a goal for you, Emmaus Road. The goal of my instruction, what's he going to say? 1 Timothy 1, is love. Where does love come from like that? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Heart, the deepest part of us. Our mind, our will, our conscience, our affections, all of our desires. We need a pure heart because we're sinners. We need to be changed by God to love each other. A good conscience. This is God's standard of right and wrong, his law. And a self-awareness of where we are right and wrong in relation to God's law. We don't make this up. We don't just kind of say, well, this is what love is. Love is expressing God's standards as we treat each other. And you need a good conscience, like in Duncan says, to do that. And a sincere faith. Not just professing faith but by the Spirit, possessing true faith. Not formalism, a wholehearted embrace of the promises of God in Christ. This is the goal of our discipleship, dear brothers and sisters. Knowing God, God is the one who causes this among us. It is not less than these things. Certainly there's more. But I want you to open up your Bibles, if they're closed, I want you to look at verse 16. With your Bibles open, with one believing heart, with one confessing tongue, I want us to stand. We're not passive, dear Christian. This is a creed, a hymn, a catechism. Christian, what do you believe? Let's say verse 16 together. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray, as you have promised in your word, Lord Jesus, build your church. The gates of hell, we no, by your promise, will not prevail against it. We pray that we would love each other from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith as we fix our eyes now on the risen Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. We move from...